0: Welcome to This is the North podcast, your source of transformative conversation, an intentional challenge to the systems holding back the North of England. Hosted by Alison Dunn, an award winning charity chief executive and former solicitor. This podcast is supported by Society Matters Community Interest Company and is dedicated to curating and sharing knowledge, powering the change we need for a more equal and inclusive society.
1: This is a podcast about disparities in opportunity and outcomes between the North and the South. Currently, the northeast continues to be the region with the highest rate of suicide in the United Kingdom. So whilst we'll be talking today around some of the broader policy and systemic issues related to suicide, I do want to start by taking a moment to remember that every suicide represents a real person. I'm joined today by Paul, who is the Chief Facilitator for the Zero Suicide Society Transformation Programme that sits within the Jordan Legacy Community Interest Company. Now, Paul, I've heard you say many times before two phrases which absolutely have resonated with me. The first is that everyone is a priority to someone. And the second is that suicide is a means of death, not a cause of death. Now, both of those are found to be really profound, and I just wondered if you could start by talking a little bit about those things and, in particular, how the Jordan legacy is using those things to pursue this agenda.
2: Yeah, well, it's very pertinent when we talk about everyone being a priority for someone and what you've just said there about the North East having... Twice the suicide rate of, of London. It sounds logical to say, let's focus on the Northeast, let's put more resources into the Northeast. And as someone from the Northeast, I might have argued that myself many times, especially when I was living in London and moved back to the Northeast. But there's a fundamental problem that we've discovered in our research, and we call it the priority trap, where government has this scarcity mentality. Where every conversation and every policy and every initiative starts on the assumption that there's very scarce resources, you can't do everything, you have to set priorities. So every conversation starts with a priority. And it almost becomes like a a competition for who's gonna win. And when it comes to something like suicide prevention, obviously having a competition with winners and losers is not a very nice place to be. And so you might get some people, when they're putting the National Suicide Prevention Strategy together, and that's just come out on the 11th of September, saying, well, let's make the northeast a priority because it's got twice the suicide rates. Uh, logically, that follows. And, of course, you might get somebody coming along with a levelling up agenda or something like that to say, yeah, let's let's focus on the northeast." But the problem with that is that somebody's going to lose out somewhere because of this mentality. You can't do it all, and therefore you have to prioritise. What we're trying to do is come up with a, a model and a framework and approach where we coordinate a whole series of micro-activities and policies and plans, and we work collaboratively, and we don't fight with each other, or we don't compete with each other, and we end up in a situation where everybody is a priority for someone. So just take young and old, for example. I mean, there are organisations out there like Papyrus that specialise in looking at younger people and the needs of younger people, and there are organisations like Age UK, specialising looking at the needs of older people. Now, we don't need to tell papyrus to look at older people or tell age to look at younger people. They do what they do naturally. But how do we link them together? Maybe look at the needs of young people in terms of their parents and grandparents, for example, and sit down together and say, look, how do we make sure everyone is a priority for someone? So that's that's that first one. The other one in terms of suicide being a means of death and not a cause of death i mean i discovered this myself when i really got deep into this subject that it's in the ons official statistics as a cause of death because that's the language the statisticians use so it's registered as a cause of death but in reality it's not it is a means of death the causes are many and diverse and multiple factors so someone who takes their own life has usually had a series of issues. It could be mental health problems or mental illness. It could be financial issues. It could be relationship breakdown. It could be gambling addiction. I mean, it could be chronic physical ill health. It could be all sorts of factors. And this combination of factors comes together to put somebody into a suicidal crisis and then they take their own lives by whatever specific means they choose. So we've got to dig deeper to find the causes and address the causes.
1: And we'll certainly come back to that. But before we do... Evelina, thank you so much for joining us today. So you're a behavioural neuroscientist and a well-being strategy consultant. How did you come to be involved in suicide prevention in particular to connect with the Jordan legacy?
3: Hi Alison, pleasure to be here today. For me, I'm originally from Lithuania and as you already probably know, Lithuania has one of the highest suicide rates in the world and the highest in Europe, which is more than double of, of the average. And to me, when I moved from Lithuania to UK, my work was really shaped by this inquiry of what makes the difference between those different countries, different societies, different cultures, and what makes the difference on individual level if you place few people into the same challenging circumstances. One of them can grow and thrive with some of those challenges and become stronger and better, and others really struggle. So for me, I ended up volunteering for a charity called Matri that works with suicidal people and a lot of my work is shaped by this research to understand the relationship between the context in which individuals operate and their individual health and well-being. And through that work, our paths with uh, Jordan Legacy and and Paul and, and Steve
1: quite often. So, Paul, can you tell us a little bit about how the Jordan legacy was established? Because there's a history to that, isn't there, which is long and very interesting.
2: Yeah, Steve Phillips set up the Jordan legacy after losing his son Jordan to suicide in December 2019. And Steve does lots of talks about uh, what happened with himself, with Jordan uh, in the aftermath. He's actually in Gibraltar at the moment doing talks to schools and businesses and a whole range of organisations. And so the Jordan Legacy was set up. What often happens when, in this case, fathers lose their sons to suicide, you know, it's like, we must do something, We must do something, we set up the Jordan Legacy, we're going to do something. And then you try and work out what that thing is, you know, in the sort of grief and the pain that you're in, you want to do something about this, and you want to stop other families going through this same thing. So Steve and I, I was working as a consultant, as a coach, as a counsellor. Steve and I got together and started working together. And over the past three years, we've Kind of always stuck to our primary purpose of how do we get the suicide numbers down? How do we get them on a downward trend towards zero? And then we've worked out different ways of doing that. So we've done talks, workshops, articles, regular meetings with the Department of Health and Social Care, etc. We've got a twice weekly radio show dedicated to suicide prevention and giving a platform people to people lived experience. We've helped launch a, a massive national initiative called the, the Baton of Hope which is the largest ever bringing together of people with lived or living experiences of suicide in the UK. And then in January 2023, we decided to do a massive action research project to look at everybody's views. Anybody who's working in suicide prevention, anybody who lived or living experiences of suicide, anybody who just feels they've got some views to add, including people who are transformational change and systems change specialists who might never have looked at suicide before, And they've all told us what they think will get the numbers down. And we've packaged that into our Zero Suicide Society report and our model and transformation framework. And we've also launched a petition (laughs) to get the changes that we need at at government, parliamentary, legal, regulatory level.
1: And often when we're talking about suicide and getting those numbers down, people will say, well, suicides sit at about 6,500 a year and actually they haven't gone up, they're staying steady, and they'll actually use that statistic as a measure of success while it's not getting worse. Is that good enough?
2: Uh, It's not good enough, no, and it's part of understanding the dynamics of how things work and how change works or doesn't work, how politics works or some would say doesn't work, and We've had situations with people who've been working in suicide prevention for many years who will say that the numbers are relatively low compared to historic levels going back to the early 1980s, for example, when I first lost someone to suicide. And they will say that recent government strategies have been successful in making sure those numbers don't go up anymore. But it's a very contestable evidence-based claim to say that these national strategies have, have stopped the numbers going up further. What we do is we say, hang on, you're saying the numbers are relatively low. That's actually stopping us changing things. You're telling us there isn't a problem to be solved here. So you're actually causing a problem there. And also, when there was a debate in Parliament recently, after another petition by another group of people with lived experience, the Learn Network, which is lived experience action right now, they had an MP standing up in their debate saying, the numbers of suicides are reassuringly low you know, which is red rag to anybody who's lost someone to suicide, reassuringly low, that is actually emphasising in their view there isn't a problem to be solved here. So the first step to solving a problem, as you know, is accepting there is a problem to be solved. So what we say is these numbers are unacceptably high. We go the opposite. They're also needlessly high, because if you ask anybody who works in the field of suicide prevention, they will tell you that most suicides are preventable. So if most suicides are preventable, we should be trying to prevent more suicides and just do the maths. Isn't that a 50% reduction we should be aiming for at least?
1: Evelina, as a behavioural neuroscientist, I'm guessing that you have a view about phrases like reassuringly low?
3: Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, the stories we tell ourselves, the narratives that we live by in our society have a huge, huge impact on our ability to take the right action and to mobilize the right resources so even if we take you know some of these extreme case scenarios and I think if we use Lithuania as a case study for you know what what is the worst that can happen there's a lot of learnings that we can take from that and the language that is being used and that is very, very important. There is also a lot of research that shows how different language that we use shape our mentality in terms of our belief systems about what we are able to achieve. So there are links again with male suicide, for example, those individuals who identify more with kind of tough masculinity traits there are links with higher levels of suicidal risks to those individuals because they are less likely to reach out for support because they are not asking for the right resources because they don't want to see themselves as as weak in a way. So
1: the language we use is really, really crucial on that. And language is important, isn't it, Paul? Because it wasn't that long ago that suicide was considered a criminal offence.
2: Yeah, 1961, the law was changed, and yeah, before then it was a criminal offence. But it's taken a long, long time to get into the mainstream of getting people out of the language they used back then. So yes, you still hear people saying commit suicide, and commit harks back to those days when it was a crime. You commit murder, you commit suicide. But it's not a crime, it's not a sin in this country. It shouldn't be regarded as a crime, it shouldn't be regarded as a sin, because we're trying to take all the, the stigma away. And the language is incredibly important because if you're trying to open up a conversation and encourage people into a conversation, and part of the solution to suicide is opening up that conversation and having the right kind of conversation, then getting your language right obviously is very, very important.
1: One thing which really surprised me was that there's a significant number of people who die by suicide who are not involved in any mental health service at all. Evelina, is that your experience? Yes, absolutely.
3: And I think, again, talking about language and causes of suicide, we really need to look at the whole kind of complexity of suicide. It's not even just a means of deaths. Actually, at individual level, it is a solution. It is a solution for this individual out of their challenging situation that they are in. And there is this huge misconception that... Suicide equals mental health difficulty, where it can be, and definitely there are links, but that doesn't mean that every individual who feels suicidal or who takes their own life did so because of mental health issues. And there is a lot of other socioeconomic influences. And you see, for example, suicide rates always increase in line with different financial crises. You can see as well suicide rates increase with different political challenges. We can see even some influences of famous people taking their own lives that then also follows with an increase. So the causes of suicide are really, really complex. And if we only see it as a mental health challenge, we fail to address all of these other causes. And at the end of the day, suicide is a symptom of a lost hope and a state of an individual where they don't see a way out of the challenging situation in which they are in. And again, those causes can come from any of those different levels, right? So there is a psychological, economic
1: and social. I mean, I'm not at all surprised to hear you say that because when we think about happiness, the things that people report as having a big Impact on their level of happiness are not necessarily the things that you would think about. They don't say it's about having money necessarily, although clearly that helps. The things which allow people to experience happiness are a feeling of self actualization, a feeling that they have autonomy over their destiny, that they are able to reach their full potential. And what I'm hearing you say there is that when those things are missing, it's not a huge step towards a feeling of hopelessness, desperation and suicidal ideation.
2: Yeah, and, and also, I mean, I'll, I'll sort of give this a more specific Northeastern flavour as well, where I'm actually writing a blog at the moment about my own lived experiences of suicide back in the early 1980s and what the Northeast went through during that time. And I talk a lot about how I knew so many big, strong, hard, resilient men who felt they could cope with just about anything and had demonstrated they could cope with just about anything. But then, you know, the factories shut down, the foundries shut down, the steelworks shut down, the shipyards shut down, the apprenticeships went. And places like, you know, Skin and Grove, where the steelworks closed down, went from 95% male employment to 95% male unemployment overnight. And those men, many of whom thought they had a job for life, they didn't have a job anymore. And then they started thinking, I haven't got a life anymore. And, yeah, and that loss of identity, the loss of that male breadwinner role. But those communities, I describe as being systemically de hoped, And so some of those people did actually go off to try and find employment elsewhere, you know, in, onto the oil rigs, out to the building sites in, in Germany, and into the British Army, most of them. So their way of trying to find some kind of identity, trying to re-establish their male breadwinner role, etc., trying to find hope, was to move away from their communities and the very support systems they desperately needed. So it is awful. But the hope that we learn from that is that you can do all of that in reverse. You can put the communities around people, keep people in a sense of community, have a community at work. And just focusing on one point that Evelina said there about belief systems, one of the things we've learned is that at a national level, nobody believes they can do anything about the suicide numbers. We sit in in meetings with people in government departments and the big charities, and they look at that 6,000 plus number, and nobody believes they can do anything about it, and nobody wants to be held accountable for doing anything about it. But if you go down to a local level, go down to a micro level, go to Newcastle, go to a school, go to a hospital, go to an individual employer and ask them what their target is for reducing suicides or what their target is for the number of suicide deaths, be provocative. What's your target for the number of suicide deaths in the next 12 months? Well, it's zero, isn't it? It's zero. They all say it's zero. They all want to get it down to zero. So you've got to work at the micro level and then all those micro zeros add up to a macro zero.
1: Absolutely. And I know one of the things that you're very passionate about is this zero suicide society and, and how we achieve that. But before we go on to talk about that, I do just want to go back and revisit this point of masculinity, because I do think, you know, it is a challenge in the North And you've talked about your experience of the 80s, but actually even now, There are sectors like construction within which there are some really significant numbers of people experiencing this issue. Why are the suicide rates so high in the construction industry?
2: Well, first of all, just to put a figure on it, for those who aren't aware, and for anybody who isn't aware, this is usually a shocking statistic. 10% of all suicide deaths in England and Wales are among people working in the construction sector. So obviously if we're gonna get the numbers down overall, we must get those numbers down in construction. And in the UK, an employee doesn't even have to report a suicide death to the health and safety executive. It's excluded from the health and safety act, which is completely bonkers, isn't it? So why is it so high? It's high because you've got a macho culture. You've got a history of bullying and terrible management styles. Then you've got insecurity. Most people are either self-employed or on short-term contracts or go from job to job and don't have, apart from a few kind of specialist tradespeople, they don't have regular work. And then the more you go and listen to people working in the sector, you really hear really practical things as well. They regularly have all their tools stolen.
0: And and so, you know,
2: there's a whole bunch of factors, again, psychological and physical and, and everything else all wrapped up in there. And what happens is the construction sector needs to, sort these problems out itself obviously but it needs our help it needs help from everybody it needs help from the government so we're arguing that we do need to change that law so that suspected suicides or psychological injuries at work have to be reported to the health and safety executive with a learning loop to address that there has to be appropriate training you've got blokey blokes haven't you who say oh you know i I don't want to talk about this mental illness stuff and this mental health stuff but when we actually sit down with them and start having a conversation, they want to talk about suicide because they see it as a practical problem they can potentially fix, just like they fix cars or they fix houses. You know, They want to fix this problem of suicide. And everybody in the industry knows somebody who's died by suicide. So they want to fix it. So we have to approach it in a very practical way that fits in with the way they think about these things and at the same time address these other issues that are causing them such distress. And then If you just take the financial one, I mean, that came up earlier briefly, you know, the financial one. Financial insecurity is a massive suicide factor. People losing their job or regularly underemployed and not having that income, massive suicide risk. And people have put forward proposals like having a universal basic income or a guaranteed minimum income. Now, if you sit down under normal political rules and have a conversation with a bunch of conservative and Labour MPs and Liberal Democrats and Green MPs, You can see the room divide along traditional political lines on a proposal to have a universal basic income. But if you approach the conversation differently from a suicide prevention perspective and say the evidence shows this is one of the ways that we can save lives. And in fact, the economic cost of each suicide is 1.7 million so there's an economic case for doing this, and there's something like a universal basic income policy. It'll probably pay for itself. Suddenly, you've got people from the right wing of politics who are saying, "Well, oh, hang on, I'm quite interested in that now. Let's let's get into that. You really, well, you know, is there evidence for that?" So it's a different kind of conversation.
0: This podcast is supported by Society Matters Community Interest Company.
1: And Evelina, business has a role to play. We've already said that the construction industry is one of those, but it's it's not the only one. And I know that you do a lot of work with business leaders at a macro and a micro level in your work as a strategist. Do you find that businesses are open to this conversation? Do they see it as a problem or an issue that they're willing to tackle or do they tend to shy away from it?
3: Yeah, I think... It really depends on the industry and to what extent they are being touched personally by that and to what extent individuals in decision-making roles had any exposure and experience with it that will have huge impact on their willingness and attitudes to do something about it. But in general, I would say... They are pretty blind and pretty ignorant and are not willing to take on responsibility as if a suicide has nothing to do with work unless it is caused in a work case scenario. So like Paul mentioned as well, you know, when we look at the wide ecosystemic level, when we say, you know, can we bring the numbers down at the government level? People don't believe that they can do anything about it. And to a degree, the same applies at company level. They believe that as a company, as an organization, there isn't much that they can do to affect that each individual. However, when you look at bottom-up approach and when you look at each individual and when you really make it personal and ask them if your colleague was to tell you that they are going to kill themselves tomorrow, what would you do? and make it really real for them, then of course, every individual wants to equip themselves with that knowledge and with the resources to be able to help. And I think that's really the approach that we need to take. And to to make it tangible, to make it realistic, we can really make it very personal. And, and that's that's the only way in. And I think for me, Looking at organizations, we are not saying that you know it is organizations' role to prevent suicides. We are saying that it is organizations' role to create psychological safety, to provide access to support, to give that level of education so that you know how to equip yourself and how to support your colleagues and your loved ones in the crisis situations. And in a way, kind of like compensate maybe a little bit what our education fails to do, right? If we are not educating our children with, you know, knowledge, tools, resources, self-awareness to understand our emotions, confidence to be able to talk about it, we bring all of those attitudes to workplace. And it creates these toxic working conditions when we don't really understand the impact of our own behavior and our own leadership style on the people that we lead. And yeah, it's definitely, I would say, it is a role of organizations to undo that damage by equipping people with knowledge, with awareness, and with some of the practical tools to help and to provide support. And if we present it as an individual-level solution, then it is possible and doable. But when we are looking at you know, the leadership is responsible for company's culture and for making sure that people are happy and safe, then it is a huge burden of responsibility, right? And therefore, how we present some of those solutions and how we engage in those conversations as someone who have access to tools and resources and interventions, it's really, really crucial that that language, again, going back to the narratives and the language uh, that shapes that entire ecosystem is really, really crucial
1: it is true isn't it that sometimes as humans we need a personal experience to galvanize us in my own role um, i have recently very closely come up against this where i witnessed a suicide um, someone who died by suicide and as a business leader the first thing i did was go back to my organization and ask for a report on all of the things that we were doing to support our people so that i can have a review of that and think about how we can do more But actually, in isolation, that impact is going to be really small. I need to be joining up. You know, we need to be joining up. And the government's just recently launched its suicide prevention strategy in which it talks in detail about the need for this not just to be a health issue, which is where it tends to sit, but to be everybody's business, including business leaders. What's your view on that, Paul? How does that sit alongside your views around the sort of the Zero Suicide Society? Do the two sit in parallel? Are they opposed?
2: Um, there's obviously a lot to unpack there, but before the government's new suicide prevention strategy came out, Steve and I at the Joint Legacy were writing up reports and giving talks about the way the system works and we were pointing out that these national strategies do tend to be this competition for priorities with the winners and losers. And every five years they get together and bring in all their data and evidence and say, you know, at this point in time, who are the priorities? Well, yeah, we'll we'll prioritise middle-aged men. That's a common one. Middle-aged men are the highest suicide rates. So we'll prioritise them. So they go into a box over there. And then we've got high suicide rates amongst you know the LGBT plus community so we'll try and do something over there so you have this kind of patchwork quilt approach and they think it makes sense and it did years ago <laughs> when the suicide rates were even higher you know 70s and, and early 80s for instance there were some targeted interventions which did actually bring the numbers down but the stat doesn't work anymore and it's too complex and when you start to look at it you've got to take this systems approach and you start by looking at individual suicides exactly as you did there. You look at individual suicide. Well, how did that happen? Uh, it, it, what could we have potentially done to prevent that? And then you sit down and have an action learning process, and you say, right, okay, well, what changes can we make? And you can think in terms of suicide being a practical act as well. So there's a series of steps with an outcome, and unfortunately, outcome is a death. But there's a series of steps leading up to it. Very few people take their lives impulsively they have suicidal thoughts, they have periods of distress, they ruminate, they think about how they might take their life, they think about methods and means, they make plans, they often act those plans out and rehearse. So there's a whole series of things you can do to get a different outcome and just like we would in any other aspect of business, you know, we'd say well let's change the inputs to get a different output or change the processes and redesign our systems and so on. So when we came to doing our reports, which came out on the 11th of July, and the government's new strategy, by the way, came out on the 11th of September, but when our report came out on the 11th of July, after more than six months of intensive study of all of this, one of the things we built in our model was that, first of all, the foundation stone is learning from people who lived experience. So people have lost someone to suicide or someone who've made a suicide attempt, etc., We learn from them because they have the real information and the real insights to help us solve this problem and then on top of that foundation stone we have two keystones one of which we talked about earlier everyone being a priority for someone the other is what we call continuous systemic action learning at the moment what you'll find is that coroners have inquests and they produce a report which lists some of the reasons why that person died and lists some of the things that could be done to stop other people dying in those same circumstances and they produce what's called prevention of future deaths reports, and they get filed away. But that's it. They get filed away. Uh, Different areas of the country have three-year audits which produce these kinds of reports, and they get filed away as well. They don't go into a system of learning and change to actually prevent future deaths rather than somebody filing a prevention of future deaths report. So that's at the heart of our model to get to a zero-suicide society, that you do have that continuous systemic action learning and we've suggested that there should be a National Suicide Prevention Office and there should be statutory local partnerships and they should share data between them which needs new legislation to achieve that and that there should be things like suicide prevention impact assessments before any new policy is brought in or any new legislation. Mm-hmm. Now just coming on to the suicide prevention strategy, that came out on the 11th of September. Uh, it was a year late, so it should have come out in September 2022. Then when it came out, once again, it's a whole mishmash of initiatives and actions and suggested actions uh, very low ambition no reduction target no new resources in fact less resources and it sets these priorities again so this year they've announced a new priority autistic people uh, a new priority because evidence is emerging that uh, potentially up to 10% of all suicides are autistic people and then somebody said oh there's a high suicide rate amongst new mothers pregnant women and new mothers oh right we'll better have a look at that one then so it's like, again, it's, like it's competition and the gambling lobby of people who've lost those to suicides have been very effective at advocating for change within gambling legislation and so on. So they've got a seat at the table. So that's great. But then what about the others who aren't so well-organised and haven't got such good data and haven't been able to argue their case? They've missed out for another five years. So we're not impressed with that government suicide prevention strategy. We don't think it'll get the numbers down. And I'll just give you one more example why. All the evidence from around the world suggests that you will never get a true cross-government, cross-department strategy if that comes out of one department. Right? It never happens. Now, guess what? We have it, Department of Health and Social Care runs that whole process and manages that whole process, determining that strategy and monitoring that strategy. And so it's not going to be a cross-government strategy. And guess what? If you're running your suicide prevention strategy out of the health department, it's still a health strategy. It's still primarily a health strategy with a few add-ons. So it's got to be truly cross-government. We're suggesting a National Suicide Prevention Office, which goes across all the departments, or even an arm's-length government agency that is responsible for suicide prevention.
1: Evelina, I can see that you're very keen to come in on that.
3: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and I just wanted to share some equivalence between that strategy at national level to how it is approached in organizations because it's in exactly the same way we are seeing, you know, mental health issues, suicides, us, you know, this is separate challenge that has to be led by you know your well-being lead, your mental health ambassador, your HR person, whoever that is given that responsibility. But we fail to integrate all of that into kind of grassroots, into strategy, into leadership, into this is our goal of who we want to be, what we want to stand for, As organization, as a nation, as a culture, and really live those values and embed those ways of working into different ways of behaving, different belief systems. And I couldn't agree more with Paul here that you know, for as long as that little health strategy remains this fragmented problem. There is no way for us to gather all of the resources and embed this behavioral change that will really make a difference that would translate into the numbers of reducing suicide. So it's, in a way, how resources are fragmented, in a way, how beliefs are fragmented, in a way, how some of those priorities remain fragmented. It's all the same, in a way, at national level and the way organizations are solving it. And there is a lot of lessons that
1: can be taken from that the fact is that many people are experiencing really hard times still you know they've got mounting costs of energy housing food people are being forced into precarious situations child poverty is rising people are sat on long waiting lists for physical and mental health treatments all of this so unless there's a change of policy that puts more money in people's pockets that reduces those waiting times for the treatment that people need No amount of sympathetic rhetoric around that is going to change it. So yes, you know, we can have people around the table, but the policy, and I suppose that speaks to the point that you were making, Evelina, about our beliefs and what we want to be as a nation.
3: Yes, and I think it's also, it applies to the level of identity, whether we believe that, again, you know, using this case of Lithuania, for example, country with one of the highest suicide rates, you know, they are seen as a nation with the highest suicide rates and it leads to this kind of acceptance of, yes, this is who we are. And I think the moment you accept that as identity level problem, it becomes very difficult to shift that. And even if you look at that from individual perspective, right, You look at, Paul was talking about the impact of specific job roles and titles, right? If you associate yourself with specific employment, right? If you see yourself as a leader, as a CEO, and then suddenly you lose that job, who are you, right? There is loss of identity there that really fuels a lot of this uncertainty and lack of ability to take practical steps. And we can really look at it from individual perspective, but the same actually applies at the level of organizations, at the level of institutions, at the level of charities who set specific vision, mission, ambition, and say, this is who we are, this is what we stand for. And that shapes all of the values, beliefs, and behavioral change that kind of has that strength to permeate through the society and through our culture, through our ways of working, social integration and inclusion of of these kind of common values and you know at the end of the day belief that yes we can and we have access and resources to do that and this is how and these are clear steps of how we're going to get there
1: i'm going to be honest and say everything you've said there doesn't seem that hard actually so why aren't we doing it
2: yeah well it. The thing is it it's a lot simpler than it's made out to be but the systems again are very complicated and the systems are working against us. so for example we hear all the time people have gone into psychiatric care and come out worse and so we often say well how do you solve that problem people say they've gone into the mental health system and have come out worse other people can't get in they're on a six-month waiting list or a 12-month waiting list to get in and so you go and talk to somebody in the nhs and they say we need more money to be able to process more people through our system. And if we get more money, then, yeah, we can do quicker assessments. We can we can have more treatment. Everything will be fine. Well, the evidence suggests that won't actually happen because if more people are going into a system which is actually making people worse, then you're just going to create more problems. So then they have a discussion where they say, oh, hang on, maybe we need to actually look at support in the community. Maybe people can get support in the community and take pressure off the health service. You know, lower the waiting lists, and maybe some people actually get better treatment and care in the community. So everybody goes, Yeah, that's good. But then what happens is that the National Health Service, who has all the power, the secondary care system, which has all of the power, drives that process. They want people in the health system to assess them, and then they want to send them out into the community. Well, the real solution to the problem is to have the assessments taking place in the community. and decide which of those people actually need to access the health service. And then the ones who do need to access the health service go into the health service and get the treatment they need. So the whole the whole system is set up almost to fail in that sense. If we actually pull people out into focus groups or whatever, or one-to-one interviews, and we say, what would help? Well, they'll say things like, well, can't we have some counselling? If you lose your job, surely you should have mandatory counselling, because you've got that for your employer, now you haven't got an employer, so you haven't got access to EAP or counselling or anything like that. So you have to then say, well, who's going to provide that support? It's probably going to come from charities and other organisations. When the government put together its new national strategy, the one that came out in September, DWP was asked what it could do to help. And it's actually written into the national strategy. It says that they will allocate some more resources to their helplines for anybody who contacts their helplines and says that they're having suicidal thoughts. Now, just, just, just think about that for a minute. If somebody has lost their job and they are struggling to get another job and they're struggling to get enough money to pay the bills and they're probably having relationship issues and housing issues and a whole bunch of other issues and they're getting humiliated, really, by their contact with DWP and they have pushed into helplessness hopelessness suicidal thoughts how likely is it they're going to ring the dwp helpline and say i'm having suicidal thoughts it's completely mad
1: yeah very unlikely but as we've raised that issue who should they be calling
2: well we've put in our petition that there should be mandatory counseling for anybody who has any kind of trauma or loss experience The government says that there should be counselling for people who've had a suicide bereavement, but that's about the extent of it. What about all sorts of other forms of bereavement? What about all other forms of loss experience? And especially somebody who's lost a job. There should be a wraparound care package for people who have lost their job because they're going through a massive transition from a workplace environment to not having a job and not having any kind of support. Now, who, who precisely provides that support? It's probably going to be a mixture of of local authority support, public health, charities, community organisations, people who provide safe spaces, peer support, etc. But there should be a statutory package of support for anybody losing their job.
1: Uh, Having heard all of that, it seems to me that a zero suicide society might be viewed by some as a bit of a utopia considering where we are right now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And we started this process back in January 2023 by recognising that people might say it's utopian or an unrealistic dream. We also put out there a conversation, we started a conversation about the term zero suicide, which often gets pushed back. It came out of a zero suicide in healthcare initiative, which started in Detroit In the year 2000, where at the Henry Ford Health System, they managed to get the number of suicides down by 75% in four years. And they actually managed to get down from 600 suicides per year to zero deaths in 2009. So, obviously, we all went off to Detroit to have a look at what they were doing to achieve this. And very simple things continuous systemic action learning was built into all of their systems and engaging staff around solutions. And also, they learned from the training packages and all the training at Lifeline and Samaritan's everybody does ask direct questions ask people don't mess about don't use euphemisms are you having suicidal thoughts are you making a plan to end your life you've got to ask those questions or you never find out and you can never save somebody's life they started asking those questions in psychiatric care as soon as they felt there was any kind of risk and then when they did their learning loop process somebody said well that's a bit late in the process, isn't it? And that's waiting until a professional has decided there's a risk. Why don't we just do it as a standard question when people go into psychiatric care? So they started doing that. The numbers were coming down. They're coming down. They're coming down. Somebody eventually said, why don't we just ask it as a standard question when somebody comes into A&E? And that's what they did. And that's how they got the numbers down. So we're trying to learn from that. So zero suicide is a philosophy and a framework and a proven evidence-based framework for reducing suicides. So we then defined a zero suicide society in January 2023 as a society that is willing and able to do all it can to prevent all preventable suicides. And then what we did in our research was just asked everybody, including people in the health service, in the schools, In businesses, we said, how do you think practically we can get the numbers down? Everything was based around practical actions and things that we can all do within this system of action learning. And through that, we mapped out what we call the desired state, not utopian dream, a practically achievable future desired state, and then listed all the actions that will get us there. And then we categorized them into actions we can all take, like everybody could be trained. At the moment, you've got about 5% of the population who are trained. In basic suicide prevention, even though there's a 20-minute online free course that anybody can do via the Zero Suicide Alliance, right? So you can just go to the zero suicide alliancecom uh, site, go to training, there's a gateway training package, 20 minutes, evidence-based, experience-informed, NHS endorsed, two and a half million people already taken it. But we need everybody to take it. <laughs> it should be mandatory. So everybody can do it on an individual level, take the training, have a conversation. Then you can look at workplaces, as we talked about. You can look at all sorts of different levels, but you've also got to look at the government level and parliamentary level and legal and regulatory framework level. And just one final thing. When we started this process of talking about mandatory training, there is a bill going through Parliament at the moment for mandatory training. But when we actually started this process, we were thinking about kind of like allied prof- health professionals or people on the fringes, and people were telling us, well, no, G- GPs don't have mandatory suicide prevention training they have, they have training in cpr and we said to them how often do you use that well last time we used it was about 12 years ago what about suicide when was the last time somebody came at the surgery and said they were feeling suicidal or oh, last week so that's not compulsory but cpr is compulsory with compulsory audits right and every year and so we said okay gps okay pharmacists you know all these people we had a workshop in west yorkshire we had two psychiatrists in that workshop and they said oh the problem is we don't have suicide prevention training the psychiatrists don't get suicide prevention training well there's a system gone wrong isn't it
1: i mean i find that astonishing but even if we take the professionals out of it it is very hard to have a conversation about this type of thing as an evelina i mean as a behavioral scientist what's your advice How, how do you start a conversation with somebody
3: Yeah, well, I think, you know, if we think that those conversations are hard, if we believe that they are hard, then we are less willing to start those conversations in the first place, right? So I think we really need to start with that shift in mentality that you don't have to be, you know, trained, qualified, professional to be able to help someone and to save lives. So I think that's, you know, that's the number one thing that we really need to promote in our society. The second thing is really building on what Paul said is making sure that you know first responders and people who have this emergency contact with other individuals have that as a compulsory training with a way to refer them to, to specialist support options and know what to do. And when we look at the public level, at the society level, making sure that every individual knows how to have those basic conversations, how to listen safely, Working for many years in my private therapeutic practice, I actually specialize working with people who have been let down by, you know, medical system, people who have been, you know, on an antidepressants since 1993, people who have multiple labels and diagnosis, people who have psychosomatic illnesses, and they believe that they just can't be helped because their struggles are emotional or of a traumatic nature. And they are being turned down because, you know, nobody can help them. Realizing that we all have a capacity to support people like that, to have the right conversations, and we keep saying, let's talk about mental health, but actually, we don't know how to listen. And that's where we need to start. We really need to know how to hear other individuals sharing their vulnerable experiences and how to hold a safe space for them. Because the common response when somebody says, oh, I don't want to live, People want to fix things for them, so they start to jumping into conclusions of, oh, you should do this and you should do that, which is, again, for somebody who feels that they are in a hopeless position and they can't do anything, now it makes them even more vulnerable. Now, the other thing as well, we start highlighting some other things of, yeah, but, you know, you have an amazing job and you have money and you have family, so how can you feel this way? So there is this kind of guilt-tripping. So... Now, instead of person feeling bad, now there is also additional layer of them feeling bad about feeling bad, which makes them more reluctant to talk about it and ask for help, right? So I think that's what we need to start with, with our education, with our conversations to say we all can help. And the biggest help that we can give is the quality of our attention and really hold that safe space that what you're experiencing and what you're going through is normal. You have a right to those feelings and help them to unpack their own experience to see when you are feeling this way. You know, what are specific triggers? What are resources that are available to you? What have you tried? What you haven't tried? Have you thought of X? And really inspiring that little step of belief in the individual that they can take action themselves And we all can have those conversations. So I think it really goes back to learning how to listen honestly and being able to hold a safe space to other individuals to be heard. And most of the time, people say, But, well, you know, what is the first thing that I say if somebody shares with me that they are struggling? The biggest, most humble thing you can do is to thank them thank them that they have chosen you to confide in you and for me as well as a professional working in that space when you have individuals sharing the most vulnerable experiences and their life stories that they haven't shared with anyone it is a very humbling experience and i think if we take that approach and we we become much more humble you know i don't have all the answers and i don't have all the resources it is not up to me to solve this person's problems but I can just be a human being and I can listen, I can be there for them and I can hold that safe space for them to experience whatever they need to experience, then that might just inspire that tiny bit of hope in that person to take that tiny little step to reach out for that help, to have more of those conversations and to access that support and we all can do that.
1: Paul, I think everybody that listens to this is going to want to know what they can do to help. And you've talked already about the petition. Can you tell us a little bit about the petition, but also the difference that it might make if people were to be galvanised to sign that today?
2: Yeah, and I'll just mention, just reiterate the training as well, we can all do something at the individual level. So the petition is for the systemic level, the policy level, but that training is all important. That Zero Suicide Alliance training is that gateway, 20 minutes, but there are all sorts of other brilliant courses assist training suicide first aid mental health first aid these are all accredited courses that people can take for a day or two days so please take the training because if you say to people have a conversation they go how, how do i do that yeah you know, i haven't got the skills to do that i've not got the confidence to do that honestly one or two days training on these courses and you'll feel right i can go out and our research actually shows this you know that the confidence levels go from You know, like 40% up to 80% just by somebody taking a one-day training course. Confidence to start the conversation and confidence to continue that conversation. So the petition is specifically for the other stuff that is outside our individual control. What we did is we went through all of the practical actions that people are taught. And we interviewed Samaritans and Papyrus and all the national charities. We interviewed the Three Dads Walking and all these great campaigners and fundraisers. And so we took these practical actions that we need, legal changes, regulatory changes, national policy changes, and we listed them. Things in there that I've mentioned, like the suicide prevention impact assessments. I mean, we have impact assessments for other things in Parliament, like environmental sustainability. Before a new piece of legislation goes through our policy review, it's tested for its impact on the environment. Well, tested for its impact on keeping people alive you know would be a good thing to do wouldn't it or harming people and potentially you know go in the opposite direction
1: and actually there's an excellent webinar on the Jordan Legacy website about designing out in public spaces the opportunity for suicide and if anybody is interested in that I would absolutely recommend that you go and seek that out So I think that we've come to the end of our conversation today. Thank you very, very much indeed for your contributions. But before you go, I'd just like to ask you, what is the one thing that we can do on Monday as individuals that will make the biggest difference? Evelina.
3: I think to educate ourselves about how would I support myself and my loved ones if that happens, because there are so many individuals who wait Until crisis really hits them and affects them personally until they take action and if each of us take that responsibility and to say am i equipped with the right knowledge with the right tools and confidence to have those conversations and the right support we could make a tremendous difference so seek out some of that knowledge and support for yourself before it's too
1: late thank you paul
2: and i would also go down the obvious route of training and personal development and emphasize that this isn't just learning about suicide This is essential life skills. It's learning how to have a conversation about anything. It's learning how to help people. It's learning how to point people to where they can get help. These are really basic life skills. And people who come on these suicide prevention training courses say, wow, it's me. I've never really thought of it like that before. This is helping us to have conversations. And Steve and I started doing these workshops for businesses and senior leaders of businesses and partners of law firms and so on. And they're all really uncomfortable talking about suicide. So we repackaged the course. As having difficult conversations, and everybody wanted that course because they said, "Yeah, I have difficult conversations every day." So what we do is we, we've got three parts to it. The first part is asking them what their difficult conversations are, so they talk about you know performance appraisals and they talk about you know redundancy and all these other things that are difficult conversations. Telling somebody they've got a personal hygiene problem—that's a good one, you know. So these are difficult conversations, and then the middle part, I interview Steve about losing his son Jordan and his experience and all the difficult conversations he had to have then, the conversations he wished he'd had with Jordan, the conversations he has now that he's got the training and the skills and the confidence to have that conversation. And then the third part is us all reflecting on all of that. And at the very end, we give them a guide to having conversations. And the very last thing we say in the guide is, if you follow all of this and practice all of this, you know what? You don't have any difficult conversations anymore because you've learned how to make these not difficult conversations.
1: Well, I, for one, shall be doing that very thing come Monday. So thank you both very much indeed for your time today. Thank you.
0: This podcast is hosted by Alison Dunn, an award-winning charity chief executive and former solicitor. In this episode, we heard from Ivlena Zemana-Vistute, is a behavioural neuroscientist researching the impact of our environment on individual well-being and mental health. In her private therapy and coaching practice, Yvelina specialises in affective disorders, psychosomatic illnesses and trauma. Paul Vittles is the chief facilitator of the Zero Suicide Society Transformation Project with the Jordan Legacy. He is part of one of the great transformational change challenges of our time reducing the UK suicide numbers from the level of 6,000 plus preventable deaths where it's been for the past 15 years towards zero.